Today on a novel review, a mantelpiece moment that took me to the theatre. A novel that explores the dystopian nature of society when oppressed, but also a novel that opened my eyes to the deceit of other writers. And, as always, what novel have I pulled down from that pile of books on my bedside table? All of that and more today on a novel review. Hello and welcome to the literature podcast, A Novel Review. My name is Seamus, your host, and together we will discuss, dissect, and explore the wonderful world of literature, and the wonderful world of literature is a vast and dense jungle, so let's start making our way through, one book at a time. Hello, hello, and welcome to the beginning of another episode of A Novel Review. My name is Seamus, and I am your host, and for today's episode, We by Yevgeny Zamyatin. But before I jump into this book, I always take a moment to reflect on any mantelpiece moments, something to highlight from the week past, and in the last week, I had a mate staying with me at my place. He was visiting from Australia, and As a thank you for staying with me, he decided to take me to the theatre to see the rendition of Maggie O'Farrell's novel Hamnet, which came out in 2020, and I have read, and it's a beautiful novel of which I would thoroughly recommend on its own merit, but the play was great. I was talking to the man at the door, and he said the play is absolutely killing it, sold out most nights, if not every night of the week, which... I mean, it's just great for the arts, but yeah, the play was fun itself. The set was so good. I always love sets of theatre productions and how they sort of come together and move throughout the play. The cast was strong. I thought Alex Jarrett, who plays Hamnet's twin sister, Judith, was absolutely phenomenal. So all in all, it was a fun night. It is always great to see a book become a play and then see that play shine. So check it out if you're in area. Read the book if you are not They were both absolutely worth it. Housekeeping, as always, all the scripts from the episode are available on my website just in case you know of anyone who has a hearing impairment who might get a kick out of a written version of the pod. So head along, they are all free for use for all to enjoy. Also, the episodes are available on YouTube with closed captions if that is more your cup of tea. So, well, here we go brilliant (laughs) absolutely brilliant oh such an easy joke to make this episode is a recommendation from a listener a dear dear listener after i spoke about the issues of george orwell ironically censoring his wife a listener reached out and suggested this book and said i might recognize it Maybe, you know, maybe George didn't censor his wife. Maybe that is a bit harsh, but he definitely took inspiration without paying his dues, without acknowledgement, honest acknowledgement. But alas, the world keeps turning. In case you are unsure of what I am talking about, the novel by George Orwell that I am inadvertently referencing is 1984. But we are not talking about Orwell today. We are talking about Yevgeny's. This novel, this pioneering novel, a novel that influenced so much and yet I feel gets little credit. And let's be clear, it is brilliant. At least in my opinion, it is. 
Let's have a bit of background. The novel was published in 1924, and it was a novel that ruffled a few feathers. Zamyatin himself had to arrange for the manuscript to be smuggled to a publishing company in New York called E.P. Dutton. The novel was translated and then published, as I said, in 1924. Zamyatin, though, decided that this was not enough, and then went on to smuggle an original Russian text to an editor named Mark Ilovich Slonim. I apologize if I am butchering some of these names, but I continue. Slonim was an editor of an anti-communist Russian emigre magazine in Prague, and copies of this were secretly smuggled back into the USSR, much to the fury of the Soviet state. Zamyatin was described as a man of incorruptible and uncompromising courage, and I don't think I could have said it better myself. The man lived like the story he told, and I think it's so incredibly important to know, to understand this before you read the story, because to us, it's science fiction. It's something that's hundreds of years removed from right now, something so impossibly far removed from our own state of government and, and how we conduct and how we can conduct ourselves. But to Zamyatin, this was real life, an act of defiance towards evil, and it was just one of many acts in his life that cost him so dearly. It would have been easy to not, to, to, to roll over and play the part in society, although I suppose for him it wasn't easy. It was not easy to simply participate and contribute to something you don't agree with, which is why he took the hard road. Yevgeny Zamyatin died in poverty of a heart attack on March 10, 1937. How often has that been the case? Poverty, despair, isolated, exiled. But this is not what the episode is about. As important and thrilling, I guess you could say, his life was, it would make a great film if there are any filmmakers out there, but this is not the episode. The episode is his novel, We. So I think we need... <laughs> oh God, it's just going to become a rolling joke now. So I think we need to have an overview to bring us up to speed. The novel opens with the ruling power one state and the building of the spaceship Integral with the hopes at visiting extraterrestrial planets. One state wants to force, and I say force in inverted commas because I guess the whole idea is that it isn't forcing but more participating through their own free will, but it is forcing. They want to force alien people to be happy and accept the ruling power of one state. Now, this is a good chance to pause the overview and say that the names in this novel are not names, but rather numbers and letters. The main character is D-503, or just D-503, and he is the chief engineer of the spaceship, and he is writing this kind of journal that he will send with the spaceship to wherever the flight will go. While out on one of his assigned walks, yes, that's right, an assigned walk, while out on this assigned walk, he meets a woman called I-330, who is unashamedly breaking the law, smoking, drinking, and flirting with him, which normally you just need a pink sex ticket visit if you would like to engage in some of those kind of activities. D-503 is simultaneously repulsed by her, but also attracted to her, and throughout the novel we learn how she is leading a revolution to take down the one state. And that is enough of an overview. Echoes of 1984, of Orwell, but not that there needed to be, but there are some changes to we that we need to differentiate. Do I, 
Do I say changes to we? They aren't the changes if they were done first. Orwell made some changes to his story, and while I think his story is slightly stronger, which is unsurprising because it's easy to build upon a solid foundation rather than lay the initial foundations itself, but I think Orwell also made some errors that make we still an incredibly important and valuable read. At the start of the novel, what I found most surprising is the logic applied to the foundations of the one state, and how seductive and tempting it sounds. This is one quote that really made me slow down and pause for thought, and it goes, I have had an opportunity to read and hear many improbable things about those times when human beings still lived in that state of freedom, that is, an unorganized primitive state. One thing has always seemed to me the most improbable. How could a government, even a primitive government, permit people to live without anything like our tables, without compulsory walks, without precise regulation of the time to eat, for instance? They would get up and go to bed whenever they liked. Some historians even say that in those days, the streets were lighted all night, and all night people went about the streets. That I cannot understand. True, their minds were rather limited in those days. Yet they should have understood, should they not, that such a life was actually wholesale murder, although slow murder day after day. The state, humanitarianism, forbade in those days the murder of one person but it did not forbid the killing of millions, slowly and by half. To kill one, that is, to reduce the general sum of human life by 50 years, was considered criminal, but to reduce the general sum of human life by 50 million years was not considered criminal. Is it not droll? Today, this simple mathematical moral problem could easily be solved in half a minute's time by any 10-year-old number, yet they couldn't do it. End quote. Hmm. What do we think of that? I in no way agree with the totalitarian state, and yet that idea, this idea that we have lost touch with humanity by allowing people to work all night and skip meals, that things like sleep aren't prioritized and exercise times, meal times, maybe that's just capitalism and globalism in general, but it is curious because we do seem to live in a demanding and instant gratification-based society that forces us to debase humanity as a whole, a slow murder day after day. That right now feels like life. I know a lot of people are struggling, you know, the cost of living crisis, the climate crisis, burnout. God, who hasn't suffered burnout in the last few years? The last few years especially have been a constant dogfight that passages like this can become alluring because... We are tired. Society is tired, so isn't it tempting to just throw our lot in and concede to this? Unfortunately, I still think no. Our freedom is worth more than our comfort. But it is these ideas that are really the foundation and one of the main tensions of the novel. D-503 is confused about I-330 and, as I said, is repulsed by her. But he is also intrigued by her, repulsed because she exercises a form of freedom that D-503 doesn't agree with nor understand, mostly for the reasons that the quote above outlined, and still, he is intrigued by her. It is this duality of struggle that makes D-503, despite the inhuman name, feel really, really human. He believes what he has been taught and what has been embedded into him, and yet 
Something in him is tempted. That struggle of a man unsure if he can commit to his country, his land that he holds personal affection for, despite that inkling feeling that maybe it's not as solid as he thought. And I-330, the other main character who is not reduced to the feminine laurels of a sexual object, but rather is the revolution herself. She leads the uncertain D-503 into the depths of the revolution and into the realm of humanity as he rediscovers mortal urges, love, jealousy, passion, but all the while struggles with his place in it all, detailing again this duality of a mass social force versus an individual. Man versus the machine of government and the rise of revolutions to fight for humanity. This feels and reads like a very humanistic novel compared to 1984, which feels quite political, and I think I prefer the humanistic nature a touch more. This, of course, is helped by the fact that, to Zamyatin, this was a reality, and so the humanistic needs tend to shine through more clearly as it was his own people that were oppressed. Zamyatin also does this great thing, which sure could annoy you, I guess, but he does this thing where he ends so many sentences with three dots trailing off, leaving the reader uncertain about the thoughts being driven through the sentence. You are left thinking one thing, and yet... dot, dot, dot. A minuscule, tiny thread of an idea to something else that sows the whole sentence in doubt. I simply loved it. The writing style is nicely polished and I think translates well. I read the Penguin Classics version edited by Clarence Brown. Zamyatin has this wonderful prose that really does illuminate the text a lot. If you are a fan of sci-fi, I would recommend this book. It is speculative, concerning, dark, and yet there are threads of hope and humanity weaved throughout to make this a 4.1 out of 5 stars. So, what am I reading this week? This week, I am reading some Rainer Maria Rilke and the masterpiece that is Letters to a Young Poet. If you haven't read this before, this is your sign to pick it up. If you have read it before, this is your sign to reread it. It is short, but incredibly luminous. It's, it is just a universally honest piece of work that it never fails to be worthwhile to read it again. It is basically 10 letters that Rilke wrote in reply to a young poet asking for advice, and the advice that Rilke gives doesn't just relate to poets, but in fact everyone striving for something in their life. If that doesn't make you want to read it, I don't know what will. Go and check it out, it's so 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 good. Now, before I close out the show, if you have listened this far, please consider hitting those 5 stars, I would really appreciate it. Also, feel free to head along to the website and support the pod. And of course, thank you, thank you, thank you for your attention. So I think it's time to end this episode. And today, to take us away, I think a bit of Maggie O'Farrell from her novel Hamnet. And she writes, What is given may be taken away at any time. Cruelty and devastation wait for you around corners, inside coffers, behind doors. They can leap out at you at any time, like a thief or a brigand. The trick is never to let down your guard, never think you are safe, never take for granted that your children's heart beat, that they will sup milk, that they will draw breath, that they walk and speak and smile and argue and play. Never for a moment forget that they may be gone, snatched from you in the blink of an eye, borne away from you like a thistledown.